You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 23 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris, and Bob is a little under the weather, so he couldn't join us this evening. But today we're coming to you again from our home at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The Library Pros podcast is produced bi-monthly, so don't forget to check us out and subscribe to our RSS RSS feed. I always goof this up. Uh, iTunes, Android, email, and now on Google Play. uh, Links and notes from today's podcast can be found on our website, thelibrarypros.com, on Twitter at at thelibrarypros, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Today, joining us via Google Hangout is David Lee King, the Digital Services Director at the Topeka and Shawnee County Public Library. That's such a mouthful. (laughs) It is a mouthful. Yes, it is. So David has also authored the book Face to Face using Facebook, Twitter, and other other social media tools to create great customer connections, and uh, the book Designing the Digital Experience, How to Use Experience design tools, and techniques to build websites customers love. He's also authored many other articles and various journals going back at least to 1995. And uh, he's also a musician, which I found kind of fun. <laughs> so you can see more about David uh, from his website, www.davidleeking.com. So welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. This should be fun. Yeah. So we're going to speak with David about uh, the geek end of libraries uh, and talking about social media, UX, which is user experience, uh, emerging trends, and makerspaces maybe. And if we have uh, – maybe we'll get a super geeky and talk about that hyperconvergence uh, thing that oh, you, yeah, you've been okay. talking about. Um, but first, we want to learn a little bit about you, David, and uh, your journey with uh, Library Land. So we're very excited when you agreed to come on the podcast. And how did you come to be in Library Land? <laughs> okay. Um so how did I become a librarian? I was right right before I went to library school. I was actually my wife and I had moved to Nashville, Tennessee for a few years. Mm-hmm. I was trying the music business out. Um, <laughs> it didn't work out so well. It was a lot of fun, but I made no money. Okay. And so I I actually said I don't know if you've ever heard of the book What Color Is Your Parachute? Yes, I have. Okay, I I went through that book. And it helped me figure out. So I, I pretended I wasn't a musician because if I just go through that book with exactly what I want, want and love to do, I'll end up being a starving musician somewhere. But so I, I realized from that that in undergrad, I really loved the research part of writing papers, just going into the library and getting a bunch of stuff and doing that research. And it dawned on me somewhere in that process that maybe I could make money doing that working in a library that might be cool so i looked into it more and ended up moving to the other side of tennessee to knoxville to get my grad degree there that's how i became a librarian i was a musician the next best thing was a librarian that's awesome yeah so where'd you say you got your master's degree from uh university of tennessee in knoxville very cool what's really right right around 95 is when i graduated okay that's great so did you always, did you kind of have a background in technology, whether it was, you know, just playing with things or? Not at all. Not at all. Um, I've, I've always liked futzing around with stuff, but I started learning computers in college 
for mm-hmm. two reasons. One, because I could get math credits out of computer classes and I hated math. And for some reason, basic programming counted as math. So I was like, oh, that's awesome. I don't have to take algebra. And also at that time, computers were still pretty new when I was getting my undergrad for for students anyway. And I'd get 10% extra credit if I typed my papers out on a computer. Wow. Using word processing. So I was like, I need that. <laughs> so I got, I, that's why I did it. Those two reasons. And I, I just started learning more technology stuff from there. And then actually my first job out of library school was I was a electronic services librarian. So at that time it was like switching out CDs in the big tower for the databases, but the web was new then and the library didn't have a website and they said, well, who wants to build this website thing? And all the old people sort of stepped back and pushed me up front because he was the young new guy out of grad school. So that's how I got started doing more technology stuff Mm. just, just by being the new guy in town and it kept growing from there. That's funny. It's really great. And it seems like most of us, if, unless you went to school for computer science, uh, we all kind of started that way. Same way. Yeah. With me. Well, you know, there's, there's all those like the accidental systems librarian book that's out there. You know, it's people's stories about how they, nobody else wanted to do it. So they, they took up the reins and did it. And that's very much how I am. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So recently we had on uh, Gina Millsap, who's kind of like your boss, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and she shared some of what she, uh, you know, she shared a little bit about, you know, the Topeka and Shawnee County Public Library and, you know, what, what's involved with going on there. Can you tell us about, you know, what you do there, what your capacity is and your position and, and some of the things you're in charge of? We'll yeah, talk, sure. We'll, well, we'll talk more specifically later about some of the cool stuff you're doing, but just in okay. general. Yeah. Um, so I'm the digital services director, which means the, a few things. I'm IT manager. So I've got a department of like eight people. So I've, you know, manage our IT department. Um, so everything technology, um, website and social media. I'm in charge of those sort of those three areas. Very interesting. So do you have uh, a staff that you work with? And if so, yeah. how many people do you have? Yeah, I do. Uh, so including me, it's eight people. Um, we've got three. Well, once I'm fully staffed again, I've got two one, one person I just hired who has starts next week and one person we're interviewing for starting tomorrow, but fully staffed, eight people. So we have a web developer, three computer techs, um, two um, networking and server administrators, um, and a database administrator. So in charge of the catalog and other things like that, mm-hmm. and myself. I think that's everybody. <laughs> and hopefully you didn't leave anybody out, right? Yeah. Um, so we're going to uh, list uh, your website. Uh, we'll talk about your website um, in the show notes, and we're going to have uh, your website listed at davidleeking.com. Cool. But um, we'd like, obviously, to give you a plug. And uh, what I liked about your, pod- your podcast, that- that's what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> what I liked about your website is that it covered – you cover a whole bunch of different things. It's almost kind of like a blog in certain respects, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very much, very much so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I started writing it because I wanted to, I, I tend to write out thoughts. It helps me form 
you know, better ideas and that kind of stuff. So I just wanted to start writing stuff and sharing that, you know, at the time Usenet news groups and library and listservs were popular and that, that didn't really work for me so much. Mm-hmm. And then this blog thing started appearing and I was like, Hey, that would be a fun way to share ideas. And that's, that's sort of where I started with that. And I, I still like doing that. One thing that was, I thought it was kind of cool, you know, I think you're the first author we've really had on maybe the first or second yeah. author. How cool. many books have you written? I've written two books, face to face, which I think you mentioned and one called designing the digital experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also those, um, LTRs, the ALA, um, library technology reports. I've mm-hmm. written three of those and I'm going to start this fall working on another one. Wow. That, so that's those pretty are impressive. Sort of like mini books are like 15,000 to 17,000 words or so. So it's like a magazine full of content. <laughs> that's pretty funny. It's that size anyway. Yeah. So since, you know, we're here at the podcast with kind of sound recording nerds, now, the next question is kind of right up your alley. You know, you write and record your own music. So how do you record it? What do you have? Yeah. You have a, a four-track at home or something? Or Yeah, well, I, I record to my, my Mac. Um, I use uh, Logic Pro to record, sometimes GarageBand. Mm-hmm. I've got a sort of a setup like you in, in my basement. Um, got a thing that I can plug in eight microphones into so I can record my drums well. And got a little music studio in my basement. That's really cool. What do you use for yeah. um, sound absorbent material for sound muffling? Nothing. <laughs> it's 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 underground, sort of, kind of. It's a basement, so just play with the gain, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's that... fun. It's a hobby. Oh yeah, you always have to have a hobby, right? Yeah, yeah. So you know, thanks. That's great. Thanks for telling us about you know all the different things that you've been involved in, just oh, as yeah. a brief, brief overview. And uh, you know, it's nice to to talk to a fellow geek, you know, to, who gets it, you know, gets the technology <laughs> right. and all that stuff. So we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we are going to talk to David about more geek stuff. So we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, and we're back talking with David Lee King, Digital Services Director at the Topeka and Shawnee County Public Library. So when I found out about um, about you, it was from our mutual friend, Ellen Druda. And yeah. what some people don't know is every time we mention Ellen Druda, she has to give us $5. <laughs> so she's up to about $150. So if we keep saying Ellen Druda through the podcast, we keep getting paid. So we're already up to $10. Awesome. So it's not too bad. And Ellen, if you're listening, I, I'm still waiting for the check. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So when you agreed to be on the podcast, one thing you know I wanted to talk about was this new term that I've seen. I don't know how old it is, but to me it's kind of new that the UX, which you know is the new trending uh-huh. way of talking about user experience or patrons or customers, depending on you know what the term of art is for your particular library, and you know how the UX, how their UX and interaction with you know the library 
affects their usage, you know, what they do in the library and whether or not they come back. And now with technology being such a heavy part of libraries, how that is affecting uh, UX as well. So in broad terms, how do you think the technology enhances the UX for the patron or customer? Yeah, you know, when I when I saw your question written out in, in your script notes that you sent me, I, I found it really interesting because I've I come from the more technology side of things and have heard the term UX for years, but only in a technology setting, you know, because it started out, at least from what I'm familiar with, like the UX of software. And mm-hmm. then it turned into the UX of websites, so website UX, um, and how to direct people and give them the best user experience, that kind of thing. Um, and that's what I've done for most of my professional career. Um, and then recently I've seen that concept more turned into a more um, library-wide non-technology type thing, which I think is really cool because it's it's all the same stuff. It's just taking that idea that's that was born digital and putting it in a physical setting. Because if you think about it like website or software UX, it's all about directional and moving per- people to the next step and helping them understand what's going on in a glance and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's the same stuff in a building sure. or, or for a service point. You know, I, I always, one, one thing I use in a lot of my presentations is a picture of a light, a light switch. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, you know, with a light switch, you don't have to think about how it works, Right. You're not sitting there pondering the electrician or if you're going to get shocked or what you're supposed to do because you know, and and that's that's how you should design that kind of stuff. That's how you should design websites so you don't have to think about how it works. It's the same way with with service points and buildings and and programs that the library is doing. Don't make it so convoluted that your customers like, oh gee, how does this work? You know, how am I supposed to check out a book? How am I supposed to turn something back in? Right. What am I supposed to do next week? You know, that that's how I think about UX. Well, it makes some sense. I mean, it, yeah, you have to uh, take into consideration everything that you know the patron or the, the the customer is going to do, and and like you said, make it easy for them to understand so they don't have to think about it. Because the, yeah, yeah, once once you have to uh, think about something. It, makes it that much harder to get to that goal or whatever the goal right, is. Right. And you're wasting the customer's time at that point. Correct. They're not, they're not focused on the things they really want to do, which is not think about your service. Right. So, you know, taking that concept one step further, you know, what parts of technology do you feel enhance that experience? You know, Wi-Fi obviously is one thing, public printing, mm-hmm. public access, you know, access to the internet, which is not such a new thing anymore. Yeah. Um, all of the above. Really, yeah. it you know uh, the the computers we have in the library for for those that need them. You know, it's not as many as it used to be because some people are you know they can check their email on their phone now, right? Right. But for people who want to sit down, I, that that is something that offers that, um, and it can be a good or a bad user experience, right? If you have a big old oaken chair that's uncomfortable and a time limit that cuts you off right before you get to the stuff you really wanted to do, um, or if you have really bad Wi-Fi that's still slowing down in the afternoons, which some libraries still have that, um, that's a bad user experience. Sure. Do you guys have, uh, just to off-road for a sec, do you have um, yeah. wireless printing for people with mobile devices? Not yet. We, we've been talking about it. Um, it, 
for me, it goes back to that UX. It's a little clunky. The, at least the, the one we've been looking at requires the customer to download something on their device, uh, doesn't work on smartphones or tablets. So there's, there's a bit of explaining to do with that. And then that, that makes it a little harder for the customer. Yeah. I've always found it interesting that, you know, the, the larger printers, the printers that are, you know, for, for industrial work versus, you know, individual home use don't integrate, um, some of the Apple or some of the Android wireless printing services that are built into the devices. Oh, I know. Yeah. If I'm in my house, printing's easy. Right. <laughs> print anywhere I am and just, just by hitting print, no wires required. Yeah. And it just doesn't make sense that the larger printing, uh, yeah. the printers don't have that. And you yeah. would think that well, they... And some of, some of those services I've read about, they, they don't, they only offer it for Windows computers. Right. To like, not Macs. I'm like, well, that's not very friendly. Yeah, especially considering what what the trend has been in the last, you know, since Windows 8 where people are migrating to Mac. Yeah. Not, maybe not so much more now because Windows 10 seems to have figured things it's out. It's still evened out some. Yeah. yeah, but you would think that, you know, between, you know, doing some kind of, you know, having printers that are compatible with the wireless devices printing because that's one of the biggest questions we have. Interesting. Uh, that, you know, well, can I, they, they show me their phone, can I print this here? And I have to say, well, you have to yeah. go to the technology center and you have to log into a computer and you have to log into your email. And you get that, that quarter of a second look like a laboratory retriever is trying to figure out what you just said. <laughs> before. Right. And I'm not saying that the patrons are not smart. It's just that there's this – it's almost as though their brains have to shift and go from mobile device mode to PC mode to realize, yeah. oh, that's right. Yeah. I can log into my email and then I guess I can print it. There's like yeah. this, you know, you have to wait for that light bulb to go on after that quarter of a second. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It it's a weird time we live in. I was at one of my blog posts I mentioned this a while ago, but nowadays you have to know multiple operating systems, both desktop version and um, you know, tablet and smartphone, et cetera. Especially for us librarians, because somebody will come in, it's like, oh, it's Android. Well, what flavor of Android is that? Yeah. Oh, it's an iPhone. Oh, it's a some strange tablet I've never seen before. <laughs> yeah, something you bought in you a know, drugstore for. They're usually bringing it up to you, saying, "How do I put OverDrive on this?" Exactly. Yeah. Like, um, let me get back to you on that. Yeah, God forbid somebody comes up to you with a BlackBerry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just take that back to the store, sir. Yeah. Oh, I got this BlackBerry Playbook. How does it work? It's an iPad, right? <laughs> no, not really. Not really. Not really. Or the people who are out there that have Windows phones. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. bought the wrong one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um, talking about you know libraries with regard to how they reach the customer or reach the patron. Mm-hmm. You know, they traditionally rely on newsletters, which I don't know if you do that so much out there. Well, which, we, we do quite a bit. Yeah, it's for, for the library I'm at, it's monthly. Uh, my wife works at a library well as well, and she does it quarterly. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's mailed to the home through bulk mail mm-hmm. and to let mm-hmm. residents know yeah, what's happening. Yeah, we do happening. one every other month. Yeah. So now with social media, you know, we have a way to reach people almost in real time. And it's, mm-hmm. the best part is it's free. Mm-hmm. But not all libraries do a great job with social media. Um, can you tell us about some of the techniques you know that you use to effectively reach patrons on social media? Because sometimes you look at a, p- a posting from one of the other libraries, and I won't name names, but you know yeah. you look at one of them and you go, 
Oh, what, what does that have to do with the price of milk? Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's really hard for um, people working in libraries to get a grasp on how to use social media organizationally, mm-hmm. you know, because most of us these days know how like Facebook works for ourselves, right? You friend your family and friends and some other colleagues, that kind of stuff, and just share stuff. Um, but then when you turn all of that into like a Facebook page for your library, suddenly it becomes a big scary thing. And either it turns into a very one-sided billboard for marketing stuff, or it, I've seen some libraries, they, they um, tend to post very librarian centric stuff. Yeah. Um, I, in Twitter, especially a lot of libraries will friend my personal Twitter account, which I just find fascinating and strange at the same time. You know, all librarians, I love it when they friend me, but when a library like in New York friends my Twitter account, I'm like, I'm not your customer. Why are you friending me? It makes no sense. Uh, so they have the wrong focus sometimes. They're, so they're posting very librarian-centric stuff. They're not posting um, consistently, like multiple times every day. Mm-hmm. And probably the, the other thing is just that it's not worded well. It needs to be a conversation um, and at the same time have the most important stuff at the top, sort of like journalists do, mm-hmm. you know, that inverted pyramid style. Right. So yeah. there, there's really just... It's a few easy tweaks, and I think the biggest tweak is post consistently. Right. And um, leading into the next question, you know, what platforms of social media do you feel are more effective? I mean, because Twitter could be a mean Uh place uh, and limiting with 140 characters. Facebook, you know, if you're not sure how to do Facebook postings for organizations, that gets a little wonky. And then you have all Uh the other stuff, Instagram and you know, the, the tree falling in the woods and nobody to hear it, which is Google+. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Well, um, the first few are easy. Uh, probably every library in the United States anyway should be on Facebook, have a Facebook page, uh, because at least nationally from like the, the Pew Research Center, almost 80% of people over 18 and up in America are on Facebook. So that that's a no brainer. That's if you think about that 80%, that's most of your library's customers, right? Mm, sure. So you should be there. You can post stuff for free. You, you'll reach 80% of your customers. Pro- really not, but you have the potential to. Um, and then every, all of the other social media channels, it really depends on where you live. So for example, in Topeka, um, Twitter's pretty important. You know, it's, that's more like nationally, 20, 25% of people are on Twitter, that kind of thing. But in Topeka, those people are um, all of our local news services. So TV and radio and um, newspaper reporters are there. Um, Our local activist type people who get stuff done in Topeka, the people heading up um, nonprofits in the area, some of our city council members are on there. So they're they're people we really, really want to connect with. Um, so I would say, at least for us, that's why we're there. If you have a creative community, Instagram is awesome for that. We we do so we're we're we have a budding Instagram account that's growing. Um, 
and that that's how I look at that. You know, if you have a business community, which most people do, most libraries do, um, LinkedIn is a growing place to be there. They're really doing some cool things right now. It's starting to take off. Um, Pinterest, again, if you have a more creative community, maybe a good, good place to be as well. So that's sort of how I look at it. Mm-hmm. And how would you deal with um, posting the same thing across different platforms? Um, well, a few different ways to deal with that. One, just do it. It's okay because you'll probably have different audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing, what what we do, we have teams. Sort of our social media accounts are set up with with different teams, so so they have a different focus. Like our Facebook account might be focusing on readers advisory where our Twitter account is more just sharing this cool thing just happened. Mm -hmm. Here's where you can check out more, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So, so we have different focuses on each one, but I, I think it's okay to have the same thing in all of those places because if it's something that you're doing and you want to share it, uh, you have more chances for people to see it. So how do you deal with, um, actually posting to social media? Do you use a, a third party, uh, app or software like Hootsuite to, to push it out to a whole bunch of different places? Or do you just have somebody who's staring, you know, with bloodshot eyes at the computer screen all day and just, okay, now I have to post about the, the children's program that's going to happen tomorrow. And, you know, or they have like an agenda or something written out. Mm-hmm. How, do, how do you deal with that? Cause I've always, at least with the podcast, I found it, it's not difficult. It's just, it's just time consuming to try to come up with posts and relevant posts yeah. and, and, and yeah. to keep the conversation going and keep the presence there. Right. Well, so we, we do number two there that, that you mentioned. Um, it's, we, we tried Hootsuite for a while. It didn't really work for us. Mm-hmm. Not really sure why, but it just, it just didn't take off for us. So yeah, we, we post Facebook stuff in Facebook. Uh, the biggest difference there is we schedule a lot of posts. So like I post on Saturdays. So if I remember um, Friday afternoon, I'll write a few mm-hmm. and then they'll get posted Saturday. Um, and, and that's, that's how we do at least our Facebook account. Everybody's assigned a different day. Mm-hmm. Um, Twitter's the same way. I, I have Thursdays on Twitter. So I watch that and maybe post something occasionally there. Um, so it breaks it up that way. So it's not like every single day I have to go post something It's no, I have once a week. That seems pretty efficient if you have the staff for it too. Yeah. Well, and we do, we're a larger library that way. So that, that works pretty well for us. Yeah. Do you have any, but, advice? you know, for a, for a smaller library, were you going to ask about smaller libraries? Yeah. I was going to say, what's your advice to somebody who's, you know, they're the social media librarian or yeah. the social media um, person. The best way to do it that way, um, well, well, a few things. If if it's a big enough library that that's part of your job, um, you, know, you can set up some tools. Hootsuite for yourself would be a really good tool to, to use. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or some of the desktop apps, like I, I use TweetBot for Twitter, so I just have it running all the time. So if somebody says something about our library, I can respond pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and same types of tools on my phone. So if I'm in a meeting and somebody says something, I can respond to. So set up those kind of tools. Also, you can schedule your time. Like I know a really small library um, who the library director is their social media poster. And he just sets aside 10 or 15 minutes in the morning 
answers things in Facebook, makes a few posts. He's probably taken a photo of the library or something and he'll post that. And then that's his social media time. And, and that works again, because it's consistent and because he's responding to people. And it does, social media is supposed to be a conversation as much as it yeah. is supposed to be, you know, throwing stuff out to the ether. Right. Yeah. So uh, shift gears for a minute and talk about some of the emerging trends in libraries. Uh, and one thing I wanted to talk about, because it's something that is a trend here on Long Island, is the makerspace trend. Oh, uh, yeah. It seems like... Um, I don't want to say that Long Island has been a little behind the curve with regard to making, but there are a lot of libraries here that still are just starting to ramp up and and saying, okay, well, now we need to figure out we're going to buy a 3D printer. But, you know, okay, that's a great start, but that doesn't make a maker space. No. Um, so it, it seems like uh, some libraries think that that's just about it. And others are, you know, kind of taking it and running with it. There are some great libraries out there on, here on the island, both in Nassau and Suffolk counties, mm -hmm. that have some really great spaces. And now it seems to be that other libraries are reaching out to those libraries and they're sharing and collaborating. And now those libraries are now catching on. Um, do you think that makerspaces is still an emerging trend from what you've seen nationally? Or is this something that's kind of leveled off a little bit? Yeah, um, that that's hard to say. I would, I would still call it an emerging trend because most libraries don't have one. So for libraries, it's still emerging. Now the people who are listening to your show that are highly techie will go, ah, David doesn't know what he's talking about. Cause, <laughs> cause they're used to it already. Right. They yeah. have one. Sure. My library has a small one and we have a bigger one that we're part of it. That's a, a community maker space, but the library down the street doesn't. So mm -hmm. it's, it's still emerging or at least more of a tipping point, you know, where, where it's starting to gain momentum. Um, but yeah, you're right. Just, just buying a 3d printer does not mean you suddenly have a maker space. Right. And you, you could get a, just a box of old stuff, <laughs> you know, and, and tear it apart. And that, that could be your maker space. Sure. And, and, you know, there is this misconception that a 3D printer makes a makerspace when really there's so much to it. And really, yeah. the, the best part about makerspaces is that the only rule is that there's no real rule. Yeah. Well, what I, what I like about the concept of makerspaces, well, I'm a geek, so I like the tools, I guess. But um, it's really more that concept of actively helping customers make stuff. We've always done that passively. If you think about like, a library 50 years ago still had art books. You know, here's how you do a watercolor painting type book, sure. you know, those kind of things, or how to build a deck or whatever. But now we're more coming alongside people and saying, here, let's get our hands dirty together and learn this new thing. It just happens right now to be more like circuits and gadgets and 3D printers and you know, jewelry making and sewing. Some of the, Sometimes those kinds of things are in makerspaces too. Um then my library is more focused on digital media lab aspect of that. So making digital stuff, but, mm -hmm. it, but it's all actively making sure. in the library, which I think is exciting. It's not just, yeah, here's a book, check it out, go home, do something. It's doing something at the library. Well, yeah, that's a, pretty I'm glad, exciting. I'm glad you brought that up about, you know, here's a book, go home because books are still part of what we do. And, it, and yeah. you know, I would say, you know, it's gone from being 80 to 90% to being 60 to 70%. Yeah. 
But if you think in terms of making, we've been doing craft programs forever. Oh, yeah. So yeah, you is, had a makerspace. <laughs> exactly. So it's just the next transition to a more, um, in some respects, a more digital yeah. um, experience. But in yeah. other respects, you know, it's, it's other things too. It, it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's like you said before, sewing mm-hmm. machines and yeah. taking equipment apart and learning how yeah. they work. And, you know, it, as much as we're doing digital things, we're doing a digital thing that used to be something that was done manually. Right. Right. Exactly. The other problem I see with some some fledgling makerspaces that libraries do are just focus or primarily focus on kids and teens. Right. Which, on the one hand, that's great. It's giving them something to do. It's giving them new skills. It's, it's nothing wrong with that. But if you stop there, I think there is something wrong with it because your greater community is made up of adults. You know, those teens are in two years, they're going to college out of state in Kansas or down the street. They're not going to be one of your customers anymore, but their parents still are. And why not turn them into makers? Well, that's because so, then, that, you know, then, then you're helping them become entrepreneurs. You're helping them build businesses, maybe, you know, giving back to the community. I, I'm much more excited about that. Well, I'm glad you bring that, bring that up because that's something that's a new trend, at least here, um, here in New York is reaching out to the 20 somethings and the 30 somethings yeah. because you have that, experience where mom or dad brings you to the library as a kid you play with the trains you read the board books now you're doing research for school and then you age out of children's and now you go into teen which again fairly new population with regard to service with teen white young adult you know that's only something that's been transformed over the last 15 20 years and mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you hit 20 and now it's get out of here you can't be in in the teen department anymore now right. what now there's this right. vast void where, oh, now you got to sit with the old guy in the back who's, you know, reading, you know, books about, you know, Iwo Jima or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, That's no fun. Right. So <laughs> so where, you know, they fall into that, that divide. And yes, like uh-huh. you, you said before, you know, people go to college and then they have college libraries that they use. And then when they come home during the summer, the last place they want to be is a library because they've been stuck in school all year. Right. So right. how do you pull those people in? That's... I think that's a bigger trick, and that's something that uh, we've been experimenting with at Sachem, the Sachem Public Library where I'm at, where we're doing um, a book and a brew, where we've reached uh-huh. out to local bars. And, oh, yeah. And they've donated you know, appetizers and things, and you make the space available so people can sit outside the library, have a book discussion, and maybe have a beer or a glass of wine or something. Yeah, yeah we've, we've done a similar thing. We've got, I don't remember what it's called, but we have a, a um, book discussion group that meets at a bar. And it, it kind of makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. And it gets younger people, which is awesome. Sure. And when we first started talking about how we were going to attract them, uh, just as a joke, somebody said, well, we got to get a liquor license. <laughs> well, and we, yeah. and we can't close at nine, we, you know, because they don't start till 10. So right. we have to stay That's open right. all night. So we kind of took that one step further and said, well, maybe we'll do this. And it seems to be doing very well. Um, well, that's cool. So we are getting people coming to it, and we are getting the demo. So that, that's kind of nice too. But you were talking before about, um, you know, makerspaces. The misconception about it being just for kids and, and teens. Uh, when when we built our makerspace it, at, at my library, we built it in each department. So oh. each, each department has specialized things for each age group. So in children's, okay. we have coding, robotics, but we also have hand tools because we want to teach kids how to 
during to use carpentry, do carpentry and use hand tools and things yeah. like that. And then in teen, they have all the gaming and, and 3D printing and all that other stuff. But in the adult department, we're doing something that's kind of unique. We have um, we have 3D printers. Uh, we have a scanner, which we've been successful about 80% of the time replicating parts for people who needed parts for different things. Oh, wow. I've actually been wondering about those. We've had some uh, some of our staff ask if we could get one. So it's good to hear that it sort of kind of works. Yes. We have the uh, the next engine, which okay. the software is good, but it gets buggy sometimes. And like I said, yeah. we have 80% accuracy, but sometimes you get something that's just a little too complex. It just won't work. Right. And then, you know, obviously we can 3D print that. We have a liquid resin printer. We have a filament printer. Okay. And uh, we also have an engraving machine, which mm. does not excite cool. the kids unless they're making a present for mommy and daddy. <laughs> and the teens don't even want to go near it. Yeah. But you talk about, you know, people in their 30s and their 40s. Uh-huh. We've had people, we've had a retired teacher who came, came in with some canvas that she had painted as a beach scene, and she brought in a Word document with starfish on it and stuff, and we were yeah. able to engrave it onto the canvas. Oh, cool. We just had um, kids coming with their moms for Mother's Day and bringing in pieces of wood in their own drawings, and we would throw it in our flatbed scanner, scan it as a PDF, size it, and engrave it onto the pieces of wood that they got in the craft store. Um, we're getting uh, people who are getting wedding presents for their friends, the 20-somethings. And one brought in a cutting board, and they engraved it with their friend's name and said, you know, congratulations and housewarming gifts and things like that. So the engraver, although it was a big expense for us, uh, it's really pulling in the demo of the adult, anyone who's over 19 and, you know, in their 60s or 70s. Yeah. So you kind of have to nice. You have to kind of think about what they want, not what the trend is. And we also have yeah. every month it uh, we call it the retro tech spot. I secretly call it I'm cleaning out my crawl space in my basement with old uh-huh. tech. Uh we have uh, a Commodore 64 that's out there. <laughs> uh we have the original iMac from 1998, 1999. Oh wow. Uh and every month we swap it out with something else. We've had uh a 386 IBM PS1 out there. Uh an Apple IIc. Uh, we're going to put an Apple 3G, I think we're putting out there next. And patrons are coming up and saying, oh, I had this when I was a kid. And, oh, yeah. You know, and, and that makes it really exciting and engaging, and that's the buy-in to get them into the oh, space. that's fun. That's a cool idea. So it, if nothing – and we were going to take the Commodore 64 out after a month, but so many people love it, and the kids see the five-and-a-quarter-inch drive and the five-and-a-quarter-inch disc and say, what's this, Dad? Yeah. And the dad's like, yeah. oh, you have no idea, kid. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and we, you know, there's Atari 2600s and ColecoVision and all these other things. And patrons are starting to say, well, you know, I have something too. I'd love to donate it for a month. Oh, so well, that's, there you go. That's fun. It, it, it's just something yeah. fun and it gets the interest of all ages too because technology kind of transcends the bounds. Right. Um, it unless, really does. Unless you're part of the World War II generation or, or dare I say, even like, you know, the early Vietnam yeah. generation where they're in their 70s now and, you know, you get the I don't yeah. computer people. <clears throat> It is fun to find different ways to attract the demo to come into the space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any classes like for Tinkercad or, or stuff like that? We, um, we've done a few coding classes. We haven't done any 3D printing type mm-hmm. design classes yet. We're still trying to figure that out. Our um, space for that kind of stuff is really more of a, a pilot project mode. It's stuck in pilot project mode still. 
Um, we have some plans. I know that, but I think that's about as far as it's gone so far. Isn't it funny how sometimes it takes a while to get the quote unquote, I'm holding up my, my fingers as the quotes plans to become reality. It is, you know, in in some cases, um, well, we're still experimenting like the, for a while, most of our makerspace type stuff was sort of in a, behind an enclosed door. Okay. So people didn't see it. So we've, we've pulled one of the two computers. It's a very small space. One of the two computers out. So now there's this big iMac in the middle of one of our public spaces. So people can say, Oh, I can design stuff there. The 3d printer's always been out. So that's, that's always been, been a draw and we're, I'm, and we're in budget mode right now. I'm planning to get a second one next year because we've had three or four months of lines, you know, people saying, I want to print something. Oh, somebody else is already printing. Come back tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So it's growing and that's a good thing. Right. And I think, uh, when I had Gina on, she said, she said something evoking the, the movie Field of Dreams saying, if you build it, they will come. Well, that doesn't yeah. really work unless you have no. some programming to, to pull the people in. And it's so true. You could have mm-hmm. a billion dollars worth of equipment there. But so what? Yeah. If people don't know what it is or how it works and right. you, you don't give them the ability to learn how it works, right? You know, it's cool, well, it, but who cares? It, it's been tricky for us because the, one of the, well, the, the 3D printers taken off also making, recording your own music has taken off there too. So kids and, and other and young adults making stuff on GarageBand has really taken off. So that's awesome on the one hand. On the other hand, there's two problems there. One, it's really hard to train traditional librarians how to plug in a microphone to another box, to a computer, and get a signal in GarageBand, right? Sure. That's, that's a pretty foreign concept. We're, we've done it with varying degrees of success, but you know, it's, that's tricky. And also just the sound because we've got some pretty good speakers in there. And sometimes other customers are complaining that thumping noise, it's really loud. I'm trying <laughs> to do some work. And we're like, well, they're, they're using the library too. So I, we're actually going to try to put up some acoustic panels and stuff next year. So they're fingers actually, crossed that works. They're actually very inexpensive on Amazon right now. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I've found some that, that, Hopefully, will work. We I don't had, have much experience with that, so we'll see. We had um, we had done a podcast with a, a gentleman in Salmon, Idaho, a r- pretty rural yeah. library, and he we found him actually on Twitter. He had posted to ALA's uh, Twitter feed saying, "Look what we've built here in Salmon, Idaho," and they built a podcasting studio. Okay, he kind of gets mad at me when I call it a podcasting studio because it's really just a, it's a recording studio. Right, right. And he bought the sound absorbent material. And he had a really ingenious way of attaching it to the wall. Now, people who listen yeah. to the podcast are probably sick of hearing me talk about this, but he used uh, sewing T pins. Okay. He pushed. He held the the the, the squares against the wall and pushed the T pins in, so the T pins retained the uh, the the material to the wall without having to glue it. And, huh. if, and if they ever wanted to swap it out or move to another place, all they need to do is pull the foam off the wall, and all they have to do is oh, spackle yeah. little tiny holes. Oh, that's that's pretty easy. So we're going to borrow that because we're in the process of planning our own recording studio over at uh, a library. Oh yeah, I'll I'll just buy the stuff and give it to our facilities guys and say, make this work. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it is a challenge because even where we're considering putting our recording studio, 
there it, it's in a bank of study rooms. Right, right. So even if you have <laughs> somebody plugged in with an electric guitar <clears throat> that's plugged into, you know, their computer, so their effects are going through whatever app they have for, for yeah. their effects, you're still hearing something. Right. And if they're singing, you're definitely going to hear you're it. You're going to hear it, yeah. Yeah, so... But again, this is, you know, what you were talking about before about librarians not knowing how to plug something into a box. There's a mindset change that has to happen, too. Uh-huh. It is. It is. And I, I, I tell them all the time, it's just like if we got a new database, you would all know how to use it. This is just like, right, you have Microsoft Word on the computer. You know how to use it well enough to get people started. Maybe Excel is a better example. Right. It's there. I can help you. I can show you the really, really basics. It needs to be that way with the Adobe suite, with GarageBand, with some of the other stuff we have. Sure. At least here's how you open it up on the Mac, and here's the dummies guide. Well, you realize you just said a dirty word, right? Yeah. Mac? Mac. Yeah. Yeah. In library land, we have two iMacs, and uh, people see them in the makerspace, and they go, oh, Mac, and they want to get onto it. And, right. you know, a couple of the librarians are like, how do I put them on? How do I, like, wake it up? How do I, you know, the basic things that, uh-huh. you know, that are foreign to people who have only list, lived, you know, lived in, in the uh, Windows biosphere. Right. So so we have, let's see, well, I'm on a Mac. Uh, we've I got am too, believe it or not. Seven or eight. I, I'm, I'm at work. We have seven or eight Macs at work for, for staff, mostly marketing staff. Gina has a Mac. So some of our administration people do um, two out in the public space right now for our, our makerspace area. And, but then my server guys won't let me say that what we have are 50 iOS type devices <laughs> Be- because we have a lot of, we've got a lot of mobile phones that like our facilities and our security people use and some others uh, we've moved from traditional wireless handsets to um, iPhones mm-hmm. with, with a few apps that we use uh, on them. Um, so we have over 50 Mac Apple products that we're having to manage. And it's, it's actually become a problem because again, we're, we are used to managing Microsoft stuff. So we're, we're figuring it out too, but you know, we don't just have a few Macs. We have quite a few uh, Apple products. That's how we're saying it. Well, that's great. Let me ask you a question yeah. though. Off off-roading a little bit, but I think it's good. Um, your ILS. Can you get your ILS onto a Mac, or is that something that's purely Windows? Um, yeah. No, uh, we use Polaris, and uh, if I'm remembering right, there's a Mac client. Okay. I don't have it on mine. I never have to get into that. So. Okay. Well, that's good. Well, and and the real answer is I also run parallels to get to a few windows products. So with, with a virtual desktop somewhere. So mm-hmm. yes, I can get everywhere because <laughs> I'm a geek. The magic of networking. Don't you love That's it? That's right. That's great. But yeah, I mean, you, you do say Mac and people kind of, some people but glaze over and it's understandable. I mean, some people are used to just one thing and that's just the way things yeah. are sometimes. Yeah. Not everybody can be geeks. So no. Um, well, but, you're, you're seeing it. That's slowly changing. I mean, you're you're seeing them out there, even if it's just an iPad that's a that's part of the the POS system at a coffee shop, right? Mm-hmm. For, for buying stuff using Square or something. Sure. You're seeing more Macs out there. Businesses they're using Macs sometimes. So, and and it does make sense. It is a it's a platform that 
the, the thing that I think is ingenious about the Mac is that, you know, with the different apps, there's so many mm-hmm. things you can do with them. They're almost like magical devices at this point. So you don't need yeah. Apple to develop software and, you know, maybe, right. you know, merchant merchant account software and things like that because it's developed by yeah. other people. Yeah. So yeah. that kind of is an ingenious uh, business model. Definitely. Yeah. So uh, how do you try to attract the 20-somethings and 30-somethings to come to the library? Um, well, we're working on that right now. We're in the midst of strategic planning. Mm-hmm. Um, so get back with me next year <laughs> on that, really. Um, now, what, what we're more focusing on right now are, um, well, traditional library thing, reading, um, getting kids age zero to five um, up to speed for kindergarten, getting them ready for kindergarten, which really translates to um, getting their parents to bring them to the library more. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a way. It's, it's focused on the kids, but it's really also focused on those uh, younger younger families, younger adults. Well, that does make sense. I remember Gina talking about the, was it the Learn and Play Bus, I think it's called? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's an amazing project. Yeah, it really is. It's it's pretty cool. How much technology is in the bus? Um, You know, not a ton. There's a computer, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a digital screen, if I'm remembering right. Mm-hmm. And and then it'll have a MiFi device for, for Wi-Fi access. Okay, so that's it's not too high tech then. No, no, and that that's pretty similar to our or other book, just more traditional bookmobiles, a couple of computers um, connected through a MiFi device. Okay. That's not so bad then. It must no. be easy to manage from an IT pre- uh, standpoint then. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty fingers crossed pretty easily. Yeah, exactly. So transitioning for a second to eBooks and e-audio books and all that stuff. Um, I know some people look to you as kind of like a, a, a predictor of the future a little bit with regard yeah, to trends. Right. Um, and I know that overdrive seems to be the um, medium that libraries all across the country are using mm-hmm. for ebook delivery. And now have you experienced uh, anything with their new app Libby? I've, I've played with it a little bit. Mm-hmm. I've had mixed feelings about it. Yeah. The, but... se- the seniors seem to love it because it's, it's simplified. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's cool that way. It's simpler to use than the traditional overdrive app. What I don't like about it is actually the, the most, the biggest thing I don't like about it is the name. Yeah. Because everybody's coming into the library saying I want overdrive. I don't understand why they just didn't make their overdrive app better. Right. Or transition building the name. a new thing that's not called the thing that it really is. Yeah, marketing-wise, I don't think it was the biggest thing. And plus, everybody thinks that it's canned pumpkin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. But you know what, though? Just like anything else, there'll be initial resistance. Oh, yeah. And it's always funny. I always compare uh, people dealing with change with the, uh, the process of grief, you know, the grieving yeah. process, uh-huh. where there's, there's shock, there's yeah. anger, there's sadness, and then acceptance. Right. It right. seems they to hold true for new technology. Definitely too. go through that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I've used those when I teach about chain technology change in libraries. I it's a grieving. You're right. It's a grieving process. Yeah. Giving up the old thing. 
Exactly. And a lot of librarians, it seems to be part of the profession that a lot of librarians don't like to give things up. No, not so much. Yeah. Um, so do you think that with the new ebook and e-audiobook formats that are out there, do you think that the predicted demise of paper books is premature? Um, pr- probably so. It, it seems that the things I've seen, um, business books, textbooks, or there's more acceptance for, for an ebook version of that, you know, cause the business people are reading it on a plane. The students don't want to have 20 books in their backpack anymore. Right. Um, disposable paperbacks somewhat, but those are still pretty handy. Just the actual paperback, right? Sure. Cheap and easy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think where it's more still, there's, there's a, a trend away from paper would be more like newspapers and magazines. Mm-hmm. You know, those, those are dwindling just a bit, especially the newspaper industry. They're having a big, a big downturn with that. So, cause everybody gets news online now. Exactly. I was actually, uh, I was teaching a class this morning. It was an iOS class and we were talking about, we were actually talking about um, iOS 11 and yeah. that they had just uh, talked about and the redesign of the Apple uh, News app. Uh-huh. And I had I only had four people because it, it was a morning class. I usually okay. get more like 15 or 20 in the evening. And they didn't know, first of all, that it existed, and they were all age groups. And when I did show them and show them how they could configure it so that if they didn't want to hear about all the vitriol and politics anymore and they just wanted to read the news stories they wanted, they were pretty shocked by it. Oh yeah, and then they then they were happy about it because they could get whatever news they wanted. Sure. And then the inevitable question came up about ten minutes in. Well, well who pays to have this done? <laughs> we, how do you know the, the head scratching starts? Well, how do the newspapers make money? How do the magazines make money? And who? What's BGR? And what exactly are they? And uh-huh. you know what's CNET? I never heard of that before. How oh, do wow. they make money? So oh, wow. it, it is an interesting concept and an interesting business model to try to figure out how they actually do it. And then and the big houses like, you know, New York Times, uh, Washington Post, you know, how are they doing it? The Times used yeah. to be doing fairly well. I, I just heard yeah. they're, they're actually, they offered a retirement incentive. Really? Yeah. So they're trying to clear out all the, the old timers behind the desks huh. so they could have less people behind desks and more reporters in the field. Oh, yeah. that Definitely. But it is interesting how the the, the whole concept of e anything, e magazines, mm-hmm. e newspapers, mm-hmm. e books, are starting to creep into the consciousness and creep into mm-hmm. the daily routine of people. I can't imagine. I I was just explaining to my kids on Sunday that when I was a kid, my dad would go out on a Sunday morning, get bagels and donuts, and get the Sunday paper. Right, and it was the tradition, and you took out the funnies <clears throat> and you read the funnies, and now my kids don't even know what a Sunday paper is. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. So you know, it, it it's interesting to see how this e evolution is happening. I just wonder, you know, I mean, libraries are always going to buy books. There's always going to be a market for paper books. Oh yeah. But the question is, how long will it be before the publishers stop publishing as many as they are and move over to digital licensing. Right. Well, I don't know. It's, it's all about money for them. Right. So 
when 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 that hits 50 or 60 percent you will know it definitely because they will they will move on a dime then oh sure because they they followed the dollar exactly not not us dang right. it well i also think it's a generational thing not necessarily generations of leadership in the industry as much as it's the generations that want the paper versus the digital yeah it is i i think middle-aged and under middle-aged depending on how geeky they are especially younger adults and and kids they they want to read the story they don't necessarily care if it's on a screen or on a piece of paper, you know, or, or watching it even, they, they, they want the story. That's the exciting part. So it doesn't really matter. I mean, that would cool thing for authors. There'll always be authors. They maybe won't have a shelf of things they've published. It might be more online now, but that people want the story. That's very true. Or the information as it yeah, were. Right. Right. And you know what else that I find interesting too is when you get late teens, early twenties people, and you try to explain what a database is to them, and <laughs> and they look at you kind of again like that Labrador Retriever trying to figure out what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and then when you explain to them, oh, well, you search. Oh, and they say, oh, like Google. And then yeah. You have, and now you have to have that conversation <laughs> again, you know. Right. And explain, you know, keyword searching that's not Google, Google, yeah. or Googleified, or yeah. Or Googleized, as it were. Um, it's, a lot of stuff to teach. Yeah, yeah, and and then I love teaching um, those same kids if they were looking for scholarly stuff to go to Google Scholar, because at least then they're getting sources they can actually cite to, and yeah. not Wikipedia or right. You know, some guy in his basement who created a website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and knowing the difference between all that. Exactly. Sure. So what do you see as the next big thing in libraries? Next big thing in libraries. Um, that is a very good question. That's really hard to predict. Um, where, where I see it going, just, just from my neck of the woods anyway, when Gina probably talked about all the stuff we're doing out and about in our communities, mm-hmm. um, just getting our staff out of the building interacting with our community in new and different ways. That that's huge. That's going to future proof our library because suddenly, you know, we're not waiting for people, you know, very passively waiting for people to come into the building to interact with us. We're going out, we're sending out librarians to the local health nonprofit and they're at the table, helping them plan the future of their organization and therefore bettering the community. Mm -hmm. We're trying to do more of that. And then also, you know, bring the community in too for not just passive things, but for more, you know, events and, and things to do. Um, I think that kind of thing is huge. Just connecting with your community. It's involves some skills that we traditionally don't have so much, you know, we're great at the reference interview, really bad at a party, so to speak. (laughs) Um, but you, you know what I mean, right? It's it's a different skill set going out and interacting with lots of different community groups. It's almost proactive versus reactive. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, and and I think that's 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 a that's an emerging trend for us. I mean, there's there's a ton of 
you know, technology type emerging trends that we were talking about maker spaces. Again, that, that can be a community building type thing. Sure. You know, so I, I look at that kind of stuff more as the next big thing for libraries. It does make sense. Um, yeah. With, you know, with what we, we've been doing with, uh, with our makerspace, we finally, we have a staff now. So oh, cool. what we were seeing was, because the makerspace is behind the reference desk, but it's in its own section. If there wasn't somebody there to engage the patron when they were walking through and kind of browsing and looking, uh, yeah. they would walk in and walk out and wouldn't look at it again. As yeah. opposed to a staff member going up and saying, oh, let me explain what we have here. And unlike the customer experience you have in a store where somebody comes up to you and goes, oh, can I help you? And what do you always say? No, I'm sorry. I'm okay. I'm just browsing. You know, and you get that, that disconnect. Right. It doesn't happen with us in, in the makerspace. So okay. now that we have cool. people in there to engage people as they walk into the into the area, they're walking out with, uh, with a request form and a card huh? that says Thingiverse and Tinkercad. So yeah. we had business cards made up. We call them... We, we call them our buy-in cards because now okay. it gives them something to walk away with so then they can come back with a project. Um, cool. So what's nice is that once you have that engagement with a staff member uh, and you take that proactive versus reactive response, because what the librarians do, right. they sit at a desk and wait for people to ask them questions. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely the traditional model. And if you take that model one step further where you engage the patron who's interested but mm-hmm. you have to break that nonverbal barrier, then yeah. then you get buy-in. Yeah. And, and whether that buy-in turns into something, I don't know. I don't know what the percentages are. We haven't studied that yet, but it's definitely more than what you're getting by just letting them walk in and walk out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, one other thing we're doing along those lines is, and it's not necessary. Maybe it's an emerging trend for libraries, but just getting rid of our reference desks or service desks. What, what we're really doing is shrinking them way, way down and sticking them off more in a corner mm-hmm. and then having our staff rove a lot more. You know, this is what you do for an hour ago. You're working this room instead of working the desk. Mm-hmm. And so that that's just that's another way we can be more actively involved with the with the people coming through. Well, when they're roving, do they have technology with them? Um, yeah. But iPads, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you can get ILS on that, or are you just going to a virtual desktop um, with that? Yeah, we can. Since we use Polaris, we have, um, uh, it's called Leap. It's a web-based product um, mm-hmm. that, it's it's pretty new, so they don't have all the traditional modules, but they have, I'm blanking right now, but they have the most important ones, the, the back-end type stuff. Okay. So, so it, it's working pretty well for us. That's an interesting model too, because yeah, you know, what one of the big things that happens is, oh no, the phone's ringing. I have to run back to the desk and answer the phone. Right. Do do, right. do the rovers well, we, we have? have phones, so they they use mobile phones too. Yeah, yeah. That's that's pretty smart. Yeah, and we're we're just building that. We've we've had one pilot project of that, and now we're working on sort of our our big room as our next project pretty soon. So we will. Fingers crossed that works well, but we've been, I think we've been training some of our staff to get up and move about a lot more for a while now. So that's interesting. Um, cause our ILS is uh, Sierra through innovative. Okay. Yeah. And, um, I'm not so sure what we can do mobily with that. 
Yeah, I'm not remembering what they do. Yeah, um, but you you pique my curiosity now with with mm-hmm. you know roving hasn't really been a huge success, but if you're taking the desk and shrinking it down and and taking the tech with you, I think yeah. that changes the whole complexion of the yeah. rove. Well, and what what we have right now, when you go into our our big um, room with new books and DVDs and this big reference desk, that's sort of the thing, the first thing you hit when you walk into the room, mm-hmm. it's the desk right there. You, you can't get around it. You have to walk up to it almost. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't, but that's what most people do. So by moving that out of sort of eyesight, mm-hmm. you know, the line of sight thing that will help a lot too. It'll just help people self-direct more. Sure. At least that's the thought. And you know, I'm glad you brought up DVDs because you know, we do have streaming services now, Hoopla and, and mm-hmm. IndieFlix and things like that. But it's never, I don't think, I don't think it's ever really going to replace the DVDs that are in the building because people like to browse. But one thing, yeah. one thing that I, I find, that it, it almost becomes cumbersome because the collection becomes so large that it, mm-hmm. it where do you put it? Yeah, that's hard. We, we've got, well, our movie DVDs, and our TV shows for the most part in one place in that big room that we have. Um, and that's probably some of our most, well, it is some, if not the most popular content we have right now. Mm-hmm. We do, we do a lot of business with DVDs right now. And then the, the more nonfiction type things are just intermixed with the books and the stacks. Um, but yeah, that's hard. It's a really busy part of our library. Yeah. And and you're right, at least for right now, that's not going to go away for us. I mean, they're, they're still making them. Um, and, you know, most of our customers aren't set up like me with iTunes and Netflix and an Apple TV kind of thing. Sure. Um, they, they still have, have to watch a movie on a DVD. It's true. Right? I just wonder, um, what the end game is like the way VHS went away, but D- VHS was replaced by DVD now. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's a generational thing too, with regard to tech, like you were saying before, maybe somebody isn't as geeky as you or I would be mm-hmm. with Netflix and mm-hmm. Hulu and, and Apple TV and Amazon prime and, and all these other, right. you know, uh, other, because you have to know a few more steps to do that kind of stuff. Right. Exactly. Um, but I was always curious to see, and I don't think you're going to get the baby boomers especially the early baby boomers to, to embrace yeah. some of these other things. But what about circulating like Cody sticks, not Cody sticks, uh, Chrome, Chromecast or, um, you know, Roku sticks or even mm-hmm. Apple TVs. That would be hard. I mean, you, you have to have, well, you have to have Wi-Fi on the other end of some sort. Right. Some, some internet signal. Or a smart TV or at least yeah, a TV with yeah, USB ports. Or... That, that'd that be a little scary. We'd have customers calling back, how do I hook this up to my Panasonic, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I don't want to go there. Really don't want to go there. But, you know, mentioning like Netflix and all that kind of stuff, going back to some, some of the emerging services like Hoopla. Hoopla is a, a prime example of that. It's a great service, but it's just like one of those other services like Netflix, you have to know a little more to be able to use it. Right. So right now, yeah, it's, 
it's an enhancement to our video services that we have, but it's just that the, the main component are still DVDs. Right. I don't think we're ready for that transition yet. No, but it's growing. I mean, for us anyway, more people are using it all the time, which is awesome. Yeah. The stats go up and, and that's yeah. all you can hope for. Right. Especially for yeah. a subscription service. Right. Yeah. I just wonder what the next transition is going to be. It's hard to say, right? Yeah, it really is. That, that's a, that's a tricky one. Yeah. So do you have any other big predictions? Maybe something that, um, someone wouldn't necessarily associate with a library for the future. <laughs> um, well, sure. The, Actually, the, my biggest prediction, I, this is just still floors me, you know, so self-driving big rig trucks. Yes. You know, like that one experiment they did last November with the, was it Otto, I think, O-T-T-O, I think that's what it was called. They delivered beer mm-hmm. somewhere. Uh, the trucking industry is saying within five years, five years, most of their deliveries will be partly um, self-driven. That's kind of scary. Which is very scary for me. Yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine because, I mean, just I mean, just as an example, this morning um, on the news, uh, and I don't know how familiar you are with New York Metro, but um, there was an accident on the Cross Bronx Expressway with three tractor trailers. Oh, so it wow. backed up traffic into New Jersey. Uh, there was about an hour to an hour and a half wait to get across the George Washington Bridge, and then it backs up every place else because everything bottlenecks. It's kind of like a, a funnel. It goes down to the Cross Bronx, and the Cross Bronx uh-huh. has no service roads. So if you get an accident at the very end of the Cross Bronx Expressway, it backs up all the way into New Jersey. Oh, wow. Or if you, yeah. or if it's going the other direction, it'll back up all the way. It could back up all the way to Connecticut. <laughs> That's and where so my daughter lives. Yeah. It was a three tractor trailer accident. So could you imagine, oh, wow. you know, if something like that did happen? Yeah, maybe people won't get hurt if they're sleeping in the yeah. sleeping in the back while the truck is driving itself. Right. But you know, I don't. I just don't think that it's there, and I don't think five years no. is going to do it either. No, I, I, I'll guess. I mean, this would make the most sense to me if I were in charge of all that. It'll start out in places like Kansas and the middle of the country where there's lots of rural areas. I, I'm guessing when they got to New Jersey, they'd be like, okay, we have to have the real driver come back out now. Right. Exactly. Long Island. I've driven, I've driven around Long Island once. I wouldn't want to do that <laughs> <laughs> by myself in a truck, let alone a self-driven truck. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. I can't even it was imagine. It's pretty twisty. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Tesla's figuring out, I think, better than most but even they yeah. have had issues where right? yeah. one gentleman died right right in car accident because it well and that's that's what they're saying right now anyway with the trucks that it's highway to highway entrance to highway exit kind of driving so mm-hmm. from the city into the place where you're going to have your long haul on the on the freeway that's going to be a person driving it then it sort sort of like um, maybe airplanes are sometimes, you know, when, when you really need the actual pilot, they, they kick in and do it. But a lot of your flight time is just sort of on autopilot. Right. So fingers crossed that all works really well. Cause the trucking industry, I was surprised it, it wasn't the geeks making this stuff. It was the like trucking industry magazine kind of trade trade magazine saying we expect this like, Oh wow. That that's an actual thing that's going to happen. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Look out on the expressway. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Wow. Well, you know what, Dave? 
David, this has been great, um, and I think we're just going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're actually going to come back and ask you our list of questions that we ask all of our guests. We call it the 032 list, which is the Dewey number for top 10 lists. Okay. So when we come back, we are going to actually uh, go over that list with you, and we have to give credit to uh, Melanie Cardone from the Longwood Public Library for coming up with the idea. So we'll be back in just a moment, and when we come back, we'll go over the list. We'll have some fun with that. back talking with David Lee King from the Topeka and Shawnee County Public Library, who's going to be our next guest and participant or victim, depending on how you look at it, of our 032 list, which corresponds to the Dewey number for a top 10 list. It's a top 10 list for librarian-related questions. So the questions were inspired by the website Literary Hub, which is a website um, that is great for informing library-related people to uh, library-related stories and interviews. You can check out their work by visiting www.lithub.com. Check them out because they do great uh, work educating and informing the library world on great topics from all over the world. Thank you, Literary Hub. So, first question. What did you want to be when you were a child? Gee whiz. Um, Wanted to be so many things. Let's see. Uh, An archaeologist... I thought that sounded really cool, digging in the dirt, finding stuff. Uh, Probably a spaceman in there somewhere. Um, That kind of stuff. Very cool. Yeah, not a librarian when I was five. Not so much. (laughs) And what was your first memory of a library, and who brought you to the library for the first time? Um, I, I grew up coming to the library. I don't really have a first memory, so it would probably be when I was, like, four or five, we moved from a really small town to sort of the outskirts of the Kansas City area in Blue Springs, Missouri, where they have a mid-continent public library, a a branch of theirs. And probably from age five on, we went there every week or so. So I just, I grew up there, really. Getting getting books, um, getting those, you were there at the Battle of Antietam type books, which I loved. and then I started reading the grown-up books because they were pretty interesting. So grew up in a library. And isn't it funny that most of our colleagues do say that? They either grew up with the library or you know, yeah. or they have a vivid memory of what the library looked like when they went there and all that fun yeah. stuff. Yeah, I, I can't imagine not growing up having a library yeah. that, that I would visit regularly. That's just weird. That's alien to me. Okay, so we kind of touched on this earlier, but when did you decide to work in a library? I mean, we talked about the whole Nashville thing. Yeah, that that would have been that. Yeah, um, and your I mean, first in, in college, I always studied at a library because I couldn't get anything done in my room. So next best place was hanging out at the library. Right. But yeah, I just realized I actually like doing this. I bet I could have a job working in a library. What's that look like? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, 
and I think we covered this too, but if it wasn't your first career path, because uh, many librarians and staff choose their profession as a second career, for you it was mu- music, right? Yeah, yeah. I- I'd be in a rock and roll band. Nice. So who is your favorite fictional librarian? I don't think I have a fictional librarian I can really even think of. I know they're out there, um, but I, I don't really think I have a favorite. Good for you. Yeah. That's honest I, I question. Honest answer. I love it. That's great. So what would you be doing if you were not working in a library? Um, well, playing in a band. Um, I might be working at a church. I mean, I, I play music at my church. Um, that's there's, there's jobs for that too. That'd be cool. Um, could be doing similar type that my, my job these days is sort of a meld between marketing type stuff, you know, communications type stuff and technology. Any number of companies out there have that kind of thing these days. So, you know, I, I really like doing what I do. Those skills transfer pretty well to, to other types of industries. So probably be doing that and music on the side. Okay. Uh, what, is your favorite, and this is an interesting question because it's morphed over time. Uh, what is your favorite section of the library, which we initially um, intended on saying, you know, fiction, nonfiction, history, you know, mysteries, but it's kind of morphed now into, well, I want to play with the computers. I want to be in a, te- in a technology area. I want to be oh, you know, yeah. a makerspace or in, in the cafe because I don't want to deal with people or the break, <laughs> the break room or. Yeah. Um, Probably, honestly, the place I go to most would be the, the fantasy sci-fi section of the library. So if, if I'm not in my office or one of many meeting rooms, that that's where I would be <laughs> finding something to read. So That's excellent. Yeah, it tends to be the genre I stick with. So. so if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to your library? Ah, that's an easy one. Um, I would add a full fledged, um, video slash creative studio type thing. There's a few of them out there. I think, um, um, I'm not remembering the names of the libraries right now. Um, but there, there are a few libraries that have, um, this own, their own separate little building that has a music studio, a video studio, um, some creation spaces for, for like digital type things. They teach classes there, but it's also, you know, fully functioning. Like if a band wanted to come in and record their album, they could do that mm-hmm. in that space. Um, those are really cool spaces. I think that'd be awesome to have something like that here. Yeah. I'm drooling just thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I just, just need land and staff and a budget. Right. Just minor things like that. Nothing, yeah. nothing too important. Right. Okay. So what, do you love about your library? Um, we are an ever changing library, which you probably got that idea from just talking to Gina. Oh yeah. Earlier on. Um, we, we don't rest on our laurels and we get laurels sometimes, you know, we're just got off being library of the year in 2016. Um, we're, we're not resting on that. We're, we're like, yay, we did that well. Now what Now what do we need to do next to connect with our community? So it's fun that way because my job's never quite the same. 
it changes a lot. I would get bored if it were the same thing all the time. Uh -huh. So I, I really like that about us. We really try to connect with our customers. Okay, so this next question, again, has morphed over time. Uh, what is the weirdest thing that's ever happened in your library? Not necessarily the worst thing, but the weirdest thing that you weirdest can remember. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that question and I was like, huh, let's see. You know, I, I guess that, well, the thing that popped into my head is probably not the weirdest thing at all, but somehow a, a guy got up on a roof mm -hmm. and was just walking around there. <laughs> somebody, somebody accidentally left a door open or something, but that would have been a pretty tricky door for him to use. Cause we don't have too many that actually lead up to our roof. So police, everybody came, they're like a, a bunch of police cars, some fire trucks trying to get this guy down. He was, he wasn't quite all there. I don't think so. Yeah. It was a bit of a trick, but that was just really weird. Cause all of the, at that time, all of the management team in the library were offsite in a planning meeting mm -hmm. and we got this call saying, there's a guy wandering around on the roof. <laughs> so it was just really weird timing. That is pretty funny. Yeah. So we all have one. Uh, question is, do you have a favorite regular patron? I don't interact with customers that much. So no, not really. Wow. I, I work in the basement. What can I say? Oh yeah, you're behind you know, the scenes more than more times. I work than with average. digital customers. They they look like Twitter icons. So, <laughs> and the last question: What are people without library cards missing out on? Oh gee, um, improving their lives, everything. That's 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 so hard. Entertainment, continual learning, uh, building new skills finding out something that you didn't know about before. Um, so many things that libraries do. And, and the sad thing is, you know, I don't, it, there are a few different models for public libraries, but here, you know, customers are paying for it every year with their taxes and missing out on so much if they don't have the library card. So it's an important thing. It is. And, and a lot of people don't, take advantage of what their tax dollars are, are paying for. And it's not really a huge part of their tax bill either. Yeah. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. Not if you consider buying a few books and a DVD or two. I mean. Sure. Or just having that digital content for having all the movies that you would have. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, just think in terms of if you, uh, if you subscribe to, uh, was it Apple music and you mm -hmm. paid and you had a family mm -hmm. plan for 1499 a month, times 12 months. Right. That's pretty close to what you would pay for your taxes for a library. Yeah, yeah it is. So, yeah, pe people, uh, I think more people need to understand that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Definitely. Yeah. So, thanks for being such a good sport and answering our silly little list of questions. It, and oh, it, yeah. Those are fun. Yeah, it's really fun. And, and it was great to have you on the podcast. I really appreciate you coming on. Well, yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, sure. So David Lee cool. King, you have a website and it is www.davidleeking.com where you can find out more about David, his works, and contact him regarding booking him maybe for speaking engagements for your organization, convention, or association. Plus, you have all kinds of really cool things on your website through the, the blog portion of your website too.
Yes. And you also have a link for your music, which I found kind of fun too. <laughs> Good. So thanks again for coming. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Sure. So that's all the time we have for this episode. Um, if you have any questions or comments about the show, go to the contact us section of our website at thelibrarypros.com where we'll have uh, notes and links from all of our episodes, including our episode with David. And you can also check us out on Twitter at, at the Library Pros or on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. And please don't forget to subscribe to our RSS, iTunes, Android, email, and Google Play feeds. And remember, the opinions stated by the Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob if Bob were not under the weather and are not those of the Sachin Public Library, the M.S. Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. So we will see you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Cristofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.